What a sweet and precious day. Just a joyous, joyous day. Ah, goodness. Good to see you all. It's going to be a, continue to be a wonderful time of worship. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible from home, there's one near you. Um, you can open your Bibles up to John chapter 11. We're going to work our way through those verses on the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Jesus raises, his, raises him up. And um, a bunch of the verses will come up on the screen. There's also an outline sheet in your worship folder. At the sound of Jesus' voice, the clear morning air cracked like a ripe apple just being split down the middle. Piercing into the doubt, the fear, the uncertainty of all the people around was the strong, steady voice of Jesus. The mourners hushed their wailing. Two sisters wiped their eyes. The gathered crowd was puzzled. Some were openly hostile. Jesus had asked that the great stone covering the tomb of Lazarus be rolled away. Let it be moved. Move that stone. A couple of his disciples put their shoulders to it, but not their heart. What was going on? What's Jesus thinking? What's, what's happening? Nobody knew for sure. There were all kinds of questions being asked that day, and none of them being answered very well at that point. What they did know was that life had been defeated again. Lazarus had died. A good man. Younger brother of Mary and Martha. Friend of many and a good friend of Jesus. This death reminded them, as it always does, that at some point it will come for the living. Death has a pass key to every house. And somehow when death comes close, it reminds us of all the defeats, the disappointments, the setbacks, the hurts, heartaches, broken dreams that happen as part of this life. That day, at the tomb of Lazarus, the pain, hurt, grief must have been almost overwhelming. Because after all, the name Lazarus means the person God takes care of. The person God takes care of, but where's God's care now? The person that God takes care of is the one who's died. What could the rest of them expect? Possibly little. Nothing. But still, they waited. They waited. And it seems like that's all they had been doing lately was wait. So here's the story. Jesus' friend is ill. A man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany. It's just outside of Jerusalem. It's a village close nearby. Village of Mary, her sister Martha, Lazarus, their brother. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now Jesus, at this point, was only about 20 miles away. If the messenger had traveled quickly, he could have made the trip to alert Jesus in just one day. Jesus sent the servant back, but then waited himself two additional days. Now, that doesn't make sense, does it? Here's the family that Jesus loved. Here's a fellow that Jesus cared for deeply. He receives word that one of his best friends is ill, and then he waits two more days to go and see him. That's, it, it, it doesn't make, make sense. By the time he and the disciples arrived, Lazarus had been dead four days. 
Four days. Lazarus had died soon after the messenger had delivered the message the first day. And all the while, they waited. Don't you wonder what was going on through their minds? What kind of strain did it put on the friendship with Jesus? Why didn't he come? Why didn't he explain? Doesn't he care? He could have prevented Lazarus from even becoming sick at all or prevented him becoming more ill or even healed him from where he was, but he chose not to. Why not? Well, it had to do with this, the glory of God. The key verse is verse 4 there in John 11. Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. It's for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. What's that mean? Well, the glorifying of the Son in John's Gospel, the term glorifying in reference to Jesus always has to do with him returning to the Father. And the means of that return is by the cross. So to glorify the Son then means it's a way of speaking of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So from the beginning of this story, what we have to realize is that this is more than just a family crisis in that little village of Bethany. This is more than just uh, a, a, an illness of a good friend. Otherwise, these verses make absolutely no sense at all. Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. What kind of friend is that? That's, it's strange. Something huge is taking place in all of this. More is going to happen than the raising of a corpse. It's pointing to the crisis of the world. It's pointing to the crisis of our need, our defeat, our lifelessness, our only hope in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what we see in the next verses, 8 to 16, is the response of the followers. If you've got your Bibles open, you'll see the flow there. Imagine how... Mary and Martha must have felt when the messenger returned with the news of Jesus' response. It's in verse 4. This sickness will not end in death. <laughs> the brother's already dead. He's already dead. He's been dead two days. Imagine their disappointment. Imagine their disillusionment. That's what's going on back there in that little village of Bethany. Looking out to the road to see if Jesus is approaching... And then looking in on Lazarus to see his life ebbing. Looking, looking out the window to the bend in the road. And then looking down at Lazarus and his body on the bed. And then he dies. Well, over the objection of the disciples, Jesus decides to return to Bethany near Jerusalem... It's a place of so much hatred, so much opposition toward Jesus from the religious leaders, the authorities. Jesus will finish the work that the Father has appointed him to accomplish before the darkness of opposition completely overwhelms. And what we find in this next section of the story gives us some of Jesus' most powerful, some of his most personal teaching for every one of us here. This is not just an ancient story of long ago. This is some of Jesus' most powerful and personal teaching for every one of us here today. He talks about this, the resurrection and the life. It's verses 17 to 44. 
Now, what we read this morning is one of Jesus' I am statements that's scattered throughout the Gospel of John. I am, and Jesus says a number of these through John's Gospel. And when Jesus says this, I am, he's declaring that he himself is God. He's calling up all kinds of history from the time that Moses asked about who will who is sending me into Egypt to free the Hebrew people from slavery? And God's response, tell them that I am has sent you. And Jesus takes those, those words and talks about that name for God and puts it upon himself. I am. I am the one who makes things happen now. I am God with you. And that's what he's declaring in this passage to his friend Martha. And he's declaring that really essentially to every one of us as well. Now, think about circumstances then and yours now. They may not quickly show that he is present or that he's active or working. But seeming circumstances, listen, seeming circumstances are not the final standard for determining whether God's at work or not. Learn to interpret circumstances by the love of Jesus, not Jesus' love by your circumstances. Seeming circumstances are not the determining factor for whether God's working or not. That's what he's saying here. He challenges Martha's faith. It's the next section. Martha says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. See the response? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then the question, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Well, something happened inside Martha as behind those words of Jesus, she heard something she'd never heard before. The words shot through her like lightning. As a doctor, Jesus came too late. But he doesn't seem to have come to pay his last respects. Here stood somebody who could do something when faced with the reality of death itself. Now for Martha and for us, Jesus is addressing our deepest fear. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He literally says, will never ever die forever. That's actually the, the literal translation of it. And it is so neat. Think about it. We'll never, ever die forever. Physical death will come, but he says that not that for one who places trust in him, death is not a period at the end of the sentence. It's more like a comma in the midst of living. For Martha, it's just simply astounding news. It's incredible. Her legs trembling, her heart beating wildly, she jumps up, she runs to find Mary, and all the gathered mourners and family follow from the house. They follow her out, and they find Jesus, and they go to the cemetery. And at that point, Jesus shares Mary's grief. Now, in this portion of the story, we're told that, that Jesus was deeply moved and, and troubled. It's in verse 33. Deeply moved and troubled. And the classical meaning of the Greek word used there is of a horse snorting. Jesus, we read it, Jesus was deeply moved and troubled. 
But the meaning of the Greek is a picture of a horse snorting. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Jesus is so seized with emotion that this deep involuntary groan is wrung from his heart. It's deep revulsion, outrage at death itself. Jesus asks then to see the tomb, and he cries. Why? Well, you say, well, it shows his humanity. It shows his compassion. It shows his, his, his sympathy. He cares. Yes. But it's deeper. He wept for the dead, but not because he was dead. Jesus knew he was calling Lazarus back from heaven. And he knew what Lazarus was leaving behind to come back to this earth, this world. And he wept. And I think he wept also for those who, though alive, know, know little of true life, who are held in a grip of sin, a grip of fear. I think he wept for countless people who, down through the ages, cry themselves. who wonder if there's any meaning to existence, if life is actually going somewhere, anywhere. If our todays relate in any way, in any significant way, to the, some distant goal. He wept for those who do little more than just kind of limp through their days and at night are glad to fall into bed and to be done with it. He wept in indignation that sin and death could so intrude into life and crush hopes and dreams and peace and joy. And then he commanded, take the stone away. Roll the stone back. Martha says, but Lord, you know what? It's not real wise to argue much with Jesus. Now, they're thinking, dead four days. This is not, this is not good. But Lord, they moved the stone. They moved the stone. Now, remember, this is not a resurrection. This is a resuscitation. Lazarus would die again at some point. But here, Jesus restores Lazarus' life. Verse 43. He called out in a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. Now, someone has said that if Jesus hadn't limited that command to Lazarus, every corpse in the cemetery would have walked out of the grave. <laughs> it's as if he said, just Lazarus. This time, this time, only Lazarus. Now, it's, it's true that, that from the time Jesus raised Lazarus, the Jewish leaders plotted and planned to kill Jesus. His teaching, his popularity absolutely threatened them, and they wanted him gone. And so they saw to it that Jesus was killed. He was mocked and scourged and crucified and dead and buried. 
Now, at this point in the story, we want to just take a pause. We want to just kind of hit the button. We want to do a little pause right here. Because some of us, some of us, we may be thinking, you know, I don't know. You know, I'm here, and it's a, it's a great story. Uh, I don't know. Resuscitation? Lazarus? Some guy named Lazarus, a resuscitation? It uh, doesn't happen every day. Resurrection? Resurrection of Jesus? That doesn't happen ever. That sounds kind of, I don't know. Eh, I don't know. It's, it sounds so fantastic. It's a nice story. But those, those ancient folks, it was just simpler time. It was easier to believe something like that. It's easier for them to, to think that that was the sort of thing that could happen. And really, really, they wanted so much for it to happen. Well, if we go down that road, if we continue to try to think that way, we have to somehow come up with the realization of absolutely changed lives in just a matter of a few days, from cowards to courage, and we have to think about how all of that gave birth to a church and what happened in that, and we have to begin to wonder, and N.T. Wright says, the early Christian understanding of Easter was not that this sort of thing was always like, likely to happen sooner or later, and finally did, nor did they suppose it was a random freak accident like a monkey sitting on a keyboard and finally producing a book called All's Well That Ends Well. <laughs> ah, listen, an old Scots believer from an earlier generation, I've, I've shared this with you before, I've had requests to share, share it with you this morning. Principal Hall put it this way. If you suppose their testimony to be false, then inexplicable circumstances of glaring absurdity crowd upon you. You must suppose that 12 men of common birth, of little education, formed the noblest scheme that ever entered into the mind of man, adopted the most daring means of executing that scheme, and conducted it with such cunning as to conceal the imposture under the semblance of simplicity and virtue. You must suppose that men guilty of blasphemy and falsehood united in an attempt the best contrived and which has in fact proved the most successful for making the world virtuous. They formed this singular enterprise without seeking advantage to themselves, with an avowed contempt of loss and profit, and with the certain expectation of scorn and persecution. And that though conscious of one another's villainy, none of them ever thought of providing for his own security by disclosing the fraud, but that amid suffering of the most grievous to flesh, the most grievous to flesh and blood, they persevered in their conspiracy to cheat the world into piety, honesty, and benevolence. Truly, they who can swallow such suppositions have no title to object to miracles." I love it. I love it. Now, take all that into account, and we come right back. We focus in on the story. You know what? Lazarus died again. At some point, how long he lived after this day with Jesus in the cemetery, how long he lived, we don't know. But at one point later, he died. But Jesus was raised up for all eternity. And so can we be. 
The miracle, this miracle doesn't just foreshadow Jesus' own resurrection. It can foreshadow yours as well. Paul writes, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. That is the gospel. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he asked, do you believe this? And that is the question, that's the question for every one of us here this morning. Do you believe this? Don't leave here this morning without coming to grips. Let your mind, your heart come to grips with your answer to that. I believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. When Jesus brought Lazarus out of that tomb, it was simply a glimpse of what was to come. So that when God raised Jesus from his grave, that resurrection for all eternity brought all of the very best triumph from the very worst tragedy. When we meet Jesus Christ, when we open our hearts to him, when we surrender our lives to him, we begin a transforming relationship that death cannot end. Time after time, he brings goodness out of brokenness. He brings joy out of pain, blessing out of sorrow. The future might be dark and hidden. The road can be long and steep. There can be much to face. There can be much to bear. But no matter how dark the situation, our risen Lord can either either turn it around or see us through. No situation is hopeless. His purpose is unchangeable. His pardon is remarkable. His power is still available and his promises are reliable. Jesus' tomb is empty. His promises are not. Calvary couldn't stop him. The grave couldn't hold him. There was was no grave deep enough. There was no stone heavy enough. There was no seal imposing enough. There was no guard powerful enough. There was no evil treacherous enough to keep Jesus Christ in that grave. On Friday, the world and all its evil said no. On Sunday, God said yes. Yes. With the raising of Lazarus, Jesus turned a cemetery into a celebration. With the resurrection of Jesus, God turned a disaster into a triumph. Martyrdom into a coronation. That's the message of Easter. Now, always, not only that Jesus Christ is risen, but that the resurrection is ours as well. When we believe him, the empty tomb of Jesus assures us that we need not fear when our own tomb is finally put to use. Because his tomb is empty, we need not fear when ours is full. But because his tomb is empty, we're assured that ours will one day be empty as well. And that is the gospel. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, our prayer is that Easter isn't just an upward glance, just a glance toward you with little thought of your sacrifice on the cross, your victory over death. Freed from death's power, guilty or forgiven, anguished find hope. We find meaning and purpose and joy and peace and hope through you. Lord, some of us may be praying, Jesus, I'm not sure if I truly know you or not. I don't know, but but I want to. 
I want to put my trust in you. I want to do that. So come into my life. Free me from the power of death. Forgive my sin. Give me hope. And give me life as you meant it to be. And Lord, all of us are praying, Jesus, we are so grateful that you're alive and available. Make us what we can never be simply on our own. Death is swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.